Long after the cleanup process of the Gulf oil spill from the Deepwater Horizon well is completed, we will still be examining the health effects of this ecological catastrophe. What are the immediate and potential long-term health risks of this disaster? You're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM160, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Maurice Pickard, and our guest today is Dr. Maureen Lichtfeld, professor and chair of the Department of Environmental Health Sciences at the Tulane University School of Public Health and Tropical Medicine in New Orleans, Louisiana. Thank you very much, Dr. Lichtfeld, for joining us. Thank you, Dr. Pickard. Pleased to join you. To begin with, you were recently on a planning committee for the Institute of Medicine's workshop on assessing the effects of the Gulf of Mexico oil spill on human health. What are some of the highlights of that presentation that physicians who are listening to us should know about? I'm pleased you're asking that question because actually this is the second time that the Institute of Medicine has decided in a way to take up my idea and come locally to talk about issues of science and issues of practice that affect our population along the Gulf Coast in New Orleans and other states. Uh, and rather than having their meeting in Washington, D.C., they came here. And so after Katrina in 2006, they did the same thing, and I helped coordinate that meeting. And again, in June of this year, they came again. The Institute of Medicine focused on five areas, reviewing current knowledge and gaps, identifying populations at risk, assessing a framework of short- and long-term research, including surveillance, exploring specific research strategies, and considering effective risk communication strategies. So in that context, it was a two-day meeting that highlighted not only the short-term and long-term effects, but gave an opportunity for communities to participate in a town hall-style meeting, gave opportunity to press, to interview and ask questions, but particularly the outcome of the workshop is actually already online for your listeners. It's www.nas.edu. It's the pre-publication version of that report and can be downloaded from that website. Critical in terms of the early findings are a few things. One is that what we need is a framework for action and a health action plan, and I'll we'll be pleased to share some more details with you. Two is that there are a series of uncertainties in science that will affect the types of exposures, but would also affect then what we can determine are the adverse health effects. Three, that among the adverse health effects, they're both physical but also mental health effects, and the psychosocial and the psychological health effects may well turn out to be extremely important as they were and still currently are after Hurricane Katrina. One of the major items, too, in terms of risk communication was the role of physicians and other healthcare providers. What is the role of physicians in this particular type of situation? It is critical for physicians to stay informed. With our busy practices, it is difficult to dive into a discipline that, is, that may not be yours. And so here are a few things um, that you can do. One, make sure you visit often the leading websites of the federal organizations, including the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, the National Institute of Occupational Safety and Health, and the Occupational Safety and Health Administration. And so those are websites, and particularly 
also the Environmental Protection Agency to get information on environmental data. So those are websites that can keep you up to date. There is a very easy way to integrate questions, at least, about potential exposures in your history taking, and that is how to take an exposure history. The Association of Occupational and Environmental Clinics, AOEC, has a CD, actually, a case study in environmental medicine that helps physicians who do not do this on a day-to-day basis how to take an exposure history. So those are some of the things that physicians can do. Secondly, as we all know, we are considered one of the most trusted sources for information. And so when patients, either former workers, communities, or others might come and visit you, they will trust that the information that you provide is credible, is right, and is right. So making sure that you can communicate that information and have that information at your fingertips becomes very important. Thirdly, uh, physicians can play a critical role in educating the physicians, so in addition, educating the patients, in addition to being the disseminator of information to ourselves and educating ourselves, we have a role in educating the community. What kind of things have been coming into doctors' offices in your community? two kinds of symptoms. One is a series of self-reported complaints that deal with more the short-term effects of exposure to those, the contaminants that we have. One of the critical areas of uncertainty is that unlike with other environmental exposures, exposures have occurred to mixtures of contaminants rather than individual contaminants. And so while we know a lot about the toxicology of individual contaminants that are involved, we don't know all there is to know and we should know about the mixtures of contaminants of crude oil and weathered oil and crude oil and dispersions. And so for all those things, uh, complaints that came in the office are more the short-term irritation, dermal irritation, headaches, nausea, that we generally relate to short-term exposures. What has also come not necessarily in formal clinics, but a number of mobile clinics and mobile care are issues that deal with the mental health and psychosocial consequences. And those, as I mentioned before, are absolutely ones that we should pay attention to. I think most Americans thought immediately, at least I did, of Exxon Valdez, which happened in 1989. Did that experience help us? I realize the leak in that oil was on the surface, and this was beneath the surface. Did that give us any added information, either in research or in treatment at the bedside? It helped us some, but because the exposures are so different, the scenario is very different. There are other studies that have similar, about 12 to 14 studies actually we reviewed during the IOM workshop. This Gulf of Mexico hospital really is unique in a number of ways. One, it is unique in magnitude. We've never had such a big spill. Second, it's unique in the mixture of the contaminants that we have, making it difficult to truly fingerprint the exposure. And thirdly, it is unique because all of our populations are living with historic health disparities. And so when you combine those three factors, 
the impact on health, particularly long-term health effects, makes it difficult to be able to say today what those would be. And therefore, efforts such as long-term medical monitoring and long-term surveillance are pivotal, particularly for those, the temporary worker population. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Focus on Disaster Medicine and Preparedness on ReachMD XM160, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Maurice Pickard. Our guest today is Dr. Maureen Lichfeld, Professor and Chairman of the Department of Environmental Health Science at Tulane University School of Public Health and Tropical Medicine in New Orleans, Louisiana. And we've been discussing the health effects of the Gulf of Mexico oil spill. A new factor in this spill is that we've already used 2 million gallons of dispersants to break up this particular spill. Will this complicate research and care? It will affect it and it complicates it because those are not contaminants that we had seen before. Secondly, it complicates it because of the effects that dispersions also will have on the ecosystem on the longer term. And so we're both dealing with human beings and population potential exposure, but to exposure to the ecosystem and ultimately the impact it will have on edible seafood as well. And so its complication reaches far more than what we've seen here. And sometimes, I guess, people forget what dispersants do. They don't delete, they disperse. And so that plume is still with us. We've had several catastrophes, epidemics, avian flu, SARS, H1N1, 9-11, Katrina, and it seems that each one sends us into, or it appears to send us into a state of chaos as to how to deal with these medical emergencies. You mentioned an action plan. Are we developing something that will give us some head start on the next one, and there probably certainly will be a next one? There are, in a way, three kinds of action plans. The first one is that deals with general disaster preparedness. As I always say, we need to make disaster preparedness part of everyday care, of everyday public health, of everyday medicine, where it is as common as brushing our teeth. And so we don't have to make it happen. It should be part of what we do. Every person and us leading the effort should have a personal preparedness plan. We need to exercise our communication plan. Um, So we need to be, as a city, as a state, as a country, be prepared. That's one action plan. The second action plan is what we do as a medical society, as a medical population with a special responsibility. And so although that may take us out of our offices or out of our academic institution, the front line needs us, and we should be able to make time and make that effort to do. And I have to say that within New Orleans, Louisiana, and on the Gulf Coast, there's a lot of volunteering of that kind going on. And so we should be ready to be mobilized. The third action plan has to specifically has to do with this oil spill. And I'd like to share at least my view on those six areas. And those six areas are also included in the IOM pre-publication report. The first is to characterize the contaminants of concern in all environmental media over time. So what's in the air, what's in the water, what's in the soil, on the beaches, not only today, but over time as it weathers. Secondly, is to fingerprint the exposure which means we must commit to biospecimen banking because what we don't know 
in terms of answers today, we might get clues a few years ahead if we follow the, particularly the temporary workers over time. And so fingerprinting that exposure, looking for potentially genetics to provide us some of that information will be critical. Thirdly, protecting those that are most vulnerable. My mantra is always if we protect those that are most vulnerable, particularly our population with health disparities, we will protect all. Next is communicating that risk clearly and early and making sure we take into account health literacy, the health literacy level in our populations, to educate health professionals, as we discussed, but also to educate communities. And lastly, to deal with that transparency, that uncertainty, the uh, misinformation that's out there, to disseminate the correct information just in time and just in case. Within the area of research, there's a current focus on the population that we feel is of our highest concern currently, and those are the temporary workers who had to park their boats to become cleanup workers, and those we would be following up over time. In closing, I'm glad you touched on two things, the health disparities and the volunteers. I was glad that you mentioned what sounded like town hall meetings. I've heard said that the people who understand this the most are the fishermen. They understand the water. They understand the shores. And in your meetings, did you incorporate them in this firsthand on-the-ground knowledge? Yes. Not only during the IOM workshop, but across all the parishes. In fact, a team of my department here is currently on its way to one of the parishes to indeed get that information from them because they know best what has happened, how things are. They also know how to connect so that we get maximum participation as we go on to research. And so how to make science work for communities will require us to build on local assets, to work with communities as research partners, not research subjects, to do this holistically so that we integrate and address the health disparities that already exist, to do this particularly in a culturally competent way. We have a significant Vietnamese population in New Orleans East, for example, and to do this in a way that is transparent. And so when we do research or action or clinical undertakings in this manner, we will not only benefit the community, but we will have the communities as partners. I remember early on in my medical school training, and I think you validated it, doctor, listen to the patient. They're telling you what's wrong with them. And we've been talking to Dr. Maureen Lichtfeld about the health effects of the Gulf oil spill. Dr. Lichtfeld, thank you very much for being our guest today. You're welcome. And I'm your host, Dr. Maurice Pickard, and you've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM160, the channel for medical professionals, ReachMD, online, on demand, and on air. Please visit us at ReachMD.com. And as always, thank you for listening.